1: Ditch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirkonish right here in the middle.
2: This is the Smirkonish podcast for independent minds. On May 10th, Andrew Jacobs had a front page story in the New York Times that I've been walking around with it in my briefcase ever since, just waiting for the moment to launch this conversation. And the moment is now. The headline was as follows Psychedelics are poised to reshape psychiatry. One paragraph will clue you in as to the direction of the Times coverage. After decades of demonization and criminalization, psychedelic drugs are on the cusp of entering mainstream psychiatry with profound implications for a field that in recent decades has seen few pharmacological advancements for the treatment of mental disorders and addiction. The need for new therapeutics has gained greater urgency amid a national epidemic of opioid abuse and suicide. The reason that I'm talking about it today is because George Goldsmith has just penned exclusive content for Smirconish.com that I found to be very interesting. He's the CEO and co-founder of Compass Pathways and joins me now. Hey, George, thank you so much for what you wrote and thank you for your willingness to discuss it further on the program. I appreciate your being here.
3: You bet, Michael. Great to meet you.
2: I I know that there's there's something specific you want to discuss, which is uh, Comp360, which is your synthetic psilocybin. By the way, psilocybin or psilocybin, what's the correct pronunciation?
3: Uh, It actually depends on what side of the Atlantic. So on your side, it's psilocybin. On the side that we're in at London, it's psilocybin. So go figure.
2: What accounts, before I talk about, Comp 360. Give me the, the big picture view. Why all of a sudden, or at least it seems this way to me, are psychedelics being discussed by mental health professionals? What, what accounts for transforming this from the world of the Grateful Dead and the Kool-Aid acid test to something now being looked at to treat anxiety and depression and maybe prevent suicide? What have I missed?
3: Well, it's a little bit of a back to the future situation. So if we look at when some of these drugs were first uh, invented, discovered, uh, we're talking 1943 for LSD, uh, 1958 for psilocybin. And in those times, people were doing research with this in psychiatry before it so-called escaped the lab and we saw the 60s and the Kool-Aid acid test, et cetera. But originally, these were developed actually by a Swiss pharmaceutical company and thought to be quite promising. And early research was going on, but research back in the 50s and 60s, really different than what it takes to bring a medicine to market now. And so what we're doing is really... Building on that early history, there was a huge pushback around these substances. Obviously, in the 60s, they all became illegal, very difficult to research. But back in the late, late 90s, early 2000s, because of exactly the issue written about in New York Times of just there's not enough innovation for people who are suffering, some brave researchers started looking at this again. And I think that early research, they were small studies, but there were some very interesting signals that say, hey, this may be worth looking at again. And so the comment about being poised, I think you're exactly right, and why we're really excited about what we're doing is... We're actually taking some of those small studies and looking at how to do this as a real medicine development, just like you would develop any other medicine in the 21st century. And so that's where we are right now.
2: Had the research and the investigation into medicinal value, if that's the proper way to say it, of psychedelics, had that all gone dormant because we were as a nation in
3: an era of just say no to drugs? It was in part that, but this was actually part of a global UN resolution in 1971, I believe, that said these drugs were needing to be put onto a special schedule where they were just made illegal globally. Um, and then what happened is some of the researchers, and you can do research with the substances, this is a lot of paperwork, but you can they said, let's, let's take a look at this. And I want to be very, very clear about one thing. We're not talking about people going down to CVS or Walgreens or whatever and uh, picking up some psychedelics. What we're talking about is a carefully controlled in a clinic situation with therapists. And so it's a very, very different model. We're not just dis- disconnecting the therapy aspect, and the supervision and support aspect from taking the drug. And I think that's really important as we talk about moving this forward. And that's the way the research was done back in the 50s and 60s that I mentioned as well. So what is,
2: what is the hope that someone like George Goldsmith, who is the, the CEO of a company that, that seeks to harness this new interest, what type of relief do you hope can be provided to people? And from what are they
3: suffering Well, this is really extraordinary. Our initial focus is on what's called treatment-resistant depression. Now, I have to be super clear, no patient we've met has resisted treatment. But instead, these are patients who really are struggling with getting benefit from the existing antidepressants, whatever. Sometimes people have one antidepressant, then it doesn't work, they switch, doesn't work, and then they add additional medicines. And it's often kind of a trial and error process. And for the patients who aren't helped by other things, we think there's a potential, and that's we have to underline potential why we're doing the research that a single dose supervised of psilocybin therapy with a therapist could produce a lasting benefit that could be measured in weeks and months and possibly longer without any other medication. And so that's some of the early findings, but they were done in small studies, and you have to be super careful with small studies and overgeneralizing, which is why we're doing a really large study that we just announced completing, and we'll be announcing the data toward the end of the year.
2: Naive question, and I I guess I buried the lead. What is psilocybin? I asked you how to pronounce it. I didn't ask you to explain what it is.
3: Psilocybin is an active ingredient in so called magic mushrooms. It's a psychedelic medicine. It leads to uh, changes in consciousness, perception, um, and it lasts approximately four to six hours. And it's often taken in the form of the actual mushroom. Um, but we're actually isolating, as was done in 1958 by Sandoz, the inactive ingredient called psilocybin or psilocybin. And we are putting that into a synthetic medicinal form. So no mushrooms are harmed in our work. Um, and we are developing that as a medicine. And for your listeners, I think it's important to figure out what's the difference between a drug and a medicine. A drug is the substance. A medicine is the substance plus the evidence that it's safe and effective for a particular group of patients. That's what makes a medicine. And that's what we're doing at Compass.
2: The Times uh, piece said, quote, numerous studies have shown, I'm sure that these are concerns that people listening to us are going to have. The Times said numerous studies have shown that classic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin are not addictive and cause no organ damage in even high doses. And contrary to popular lore, ecstasy does not leave holes in users' brains, studies say, nor will a bad acid trip lead to chromosome damage. I'm I'm sure that that's data with which you're familiar.
3: It is data with which we're familiar. I think that is accurate as said, but that doesn't mean that everybody should be rushing out and taking these. So um, obviously any substance does have liability risk, uh, but from a physical point of view, an addiction point of view, these are quite different um, circumstances with these particular types of medicines that were just talked about, particularly the classic psychedelics, that is LSD and psilocybin. MDMA is different.
2: So what What's? what are the mechanics? In other words, if if I were to if I were to take how would psilocybin be administered if you were to send me on a, a mushroom
3: inspired trip? Well, let me tell you what happens in research, because that's the only option we have right now is to describe the research, because that's what we're doing. And if that works, then that will be how it's practiced. The first thing that happens is you need to come off of your SSRIs or your antidepressants, which if you're treatment resistant, so-called, they're not helping you anyway. So we take you off of those because they have a negative interaction with psilocybin, we, we believe so you come off your medicines and then you are prepared for what this could be like. And so people, there's a therapist who meets with you, talks to you about your depression. This is just focused on depression right now. That's where our our research is focused. And then they also help you prepare what to expect and what to expect is that you will have a change in consciousness. Things may appear a bit differently. You may kind of be able to look at your life in a new, fresh way um and that's done in a therapy setting it's done in a comfortable place it's not like going to a hospital being strapped to a gurney it's actually in a kind of living room environment with a therapist and after the preparation which typically happens a day or two before the session um, then you take the medicine with a the therapist present the medicine starts to take effect in about 20 minutes to 40 minutes lasts about four to six hours when it starts to work a patient has a little bit of a sensation. Gee, things I feel a little different. Uh, at that point, the therapist encourages them to put on eye shades, like you would see at a, you know, for sleep mask. Um, and then listen to a specially played uh, design soundtrack that really encourages them to go inward. Um, and I know you're smiling. Well, I'm wondering what's I'm wondering that, but...
2: which which Pink
3: Floyd album goes with this, but go ahead and tell me. Well, to be really clear, we use no Pink Floyd, no rock and roll. It's actually very, it's music to evoke different emotions so people can look at their lives in this way from a different vantage point. If we look at depression, what we really know is that it's characterized by negative thoughts that often get repeated again and again internally, that inner voice we all have planning, thinking about stuff and for many people with depression they get very much caught in that nothing really works for me you know the world isn't a, a friendly place things can go bad and that rigid thinking kind of has them look at the uh, the world through different non-rose-colored glasses, shall we say. And what psilocybin seems to do through its mechanism, which we're understanding much more now with the advent of scans and so forth, is it does a reset. It really enables us to quiet that pattern of rumination, as it's called, and also have a more positive outlook. So people learn things about their life. And then the following day after the therapy, which lasts six hours or so, They go home at night and then come back the next day and work with the therapist around what insights they have around their life. And so this is the process, and it's the process we're using in research, and it's the process that we envision if the research is successful, patients will experience.
2: I I promise in a moment I will ask you about your synthetic psilocybin, but another of my naive questions first. So I appreciate the way you just explained this to me. Is the idea that if I were the patient, and I've now had this mushroom trip, for lack of a better description, that you've you've righted some type of a chemical imbalance in me, or are you changing my outlook for the better because I've been in a depressive state and what you've just done for me in that four or five hour time period will keep me afloat until I come back in a month? I realize I'm coming back the next day to work with a therapist, but hopefully you understand my question.
3: I do. And so I think that traditionally, pharma has talked a lot about chemical imbalance. It's quite a bit more complex than that. Um, so yes, there are effects that psilocybin has chemically in the brain. But I think the big issue is really the reset about how do I see the world? How do I think about it? this quieting of the inner voice? to really let new habits come. You know, practice makes permanent, not perfect. And if we're practicing a way of thinking about things that doesn't serve us, having a reset of that is very, very helpful. And so that's what the therapy does. Now, how long it lasts is a key part of our research. Some studies, it seems to last for weeks, other people months, and some people years. And so who's who? That's critical that we know that. And we kind of really rethink, you know, understand how long it works for whom. And that's why we're doing this large controlled study, because small studies just won't answer that question.
2: Okay. So you are the CEO and co-founder of Compass Pathways, and you have a synthetic psilocybin that you call Comp360, where is it in development?
3: Well, there are three phases of development uh, with the FDA. By the way, the FDA has looked at this program and they've given it what's called breakthrough therapy designation, which they mean the FDA thinks this is perhaps is promising for sure and could be an alternative where patients don't have them. So the FDA is working closely with us, but more importantly, depression is a global problem. We're working in Europe and North America. And what we've done is we're taking psilocybin into the what's called phase two. And that's really looking at how do we understand what dose works? How does it work for whom? How effective is it? How long does it last? That study has just been completed in 10 countries, 22 sites, and we'll be releasing the information later this year. What we're hoping to see is that one dose of psilocybin produces results that last at least until three weeks, where people are really symptom-free, and that many of those people last all the way for three months, which would be remarkable from a single dose. And that's what we're really going to report out on at the end of the year.
2: If your product comes to market, I imagine it would have to be prescribed, right? This is not over-the-counter.
3: Absolutely. But let's be clear about what the product is. The product isn't a tablet. The product is a way of caring. It's psilocybin plus psychological support delivered in a particular setting. So this isn't just a drug that we're creating. It's always going to be a medicine in a particular protocol, just like chemotherapy, right? Chemotherapy, you prepare patients, they then have this powerful dosing experience in a clinic. And then they kind of have a treatment pathway. That's how we, you need to think about psilocybin therapy. It's not just a pill. It's a pill in a process.
2: Okay. So. And another, George, I think I'm up to number six of my ridiculous questions. Here comes another. You ready? Great
3: questions. I really appreciate it. I hope so I'm answering I answered them.
2: I have no, you know, you're doing a terrific job. I have no experience with with mushrooms, either synthetic psilocybin or the real psilocybin. And I don't know if you do or if you care to, to share if you do. But I know a thing or two about weed. And part of the experience, part of the communal experience of smoking pot gets lost if you're doing edibles. And I'm wondering, is there something similar in the world of mushrooms where part of the experience is not going to be attained by a tablet? Does that question make any sense? And if so, what's the answer?
3: Uh, it Yeah, let me take each part of it. So I think it's really important that this is not cannabis. Very different safety profile in terms of people can get into some psychological issues sometimes. You've heard of bad trips. So that's why it's important to have the therapist present. Um, And so let's make sure that we're not confusing the two or making them seem like, well, they're both illegal, therefore they're the same thing, not the case, or legal some places. Um, Secondly, I think your point about... Doing this in a group setting is very interesting. Um, We're actually exploring that as we speak outside of Washington, D.C. right now in a study we're doing with FDA approval and cancer patients, where what we found is cancer patients after they get a diagnosis are often anxious and depressed. And there have been some prior small academic studies looking at, well, does this help? And the early answer looks like it. So what we're doing now is we're actually working with four patients at a time, preparing them together. They then are in this beautiful clinic that's been developed, uh, Aquilino Cancer Center, if anybody wants to look at it or you want to include a link on this. And then they come together after the session and work together as a group around their fears, their concerns, their challenges. And And so we're doing that in a group setting, and it'll be interesting to see what we make of it. Again, those results will also be out. That's a different study, but it'll also be out this year, and we'll learn more from it. Maybe we'll come back and talk about what we learned when we learn it.
2: Why are you pursuing synthetic psilocybin instead of hoping that there's a value that's established by the FDA for psilocybin and therefore growing mushrooms and, and putting the real thing on the market? Explain that to me.
3: Well, the real thing is complicated, right? There are lots of other substances in it. Um, there's a lot of variability. And one of the things that every regulator looks for is what's the quality of the actual medicine? And what do they mean by quality? That I can take the same thing anytime, anywhere in the world, and it's going to be the same experience. Right? You can't do that with mushrooms. So it makes it very, very difficult for regulators to look at. And we came to this out of a personal family situation where we really struggled with what was on offer uh, for our son. And we saw that a lot of innovation was needed. And this looked like an important area to innovate in mental health. And I think the reason you're seeing headlines is because COVID has an echo and it's a mental health echo. We all see that. And I think mental health and people being able to talk about mental health is coming to the fore. So I think all these forces come together and hopefully will show some positive results that can really translate into a new set of options for patients who desperately need them.
2: I didn't know of the personal story. And I I hope that your son, I think you said it was your son. I hope your son is well.
3: He's doing better. And and I think that this is, you know, what became very clear to us is that it does get very quickly to trial and error if someone doesn't respond initially. We felt that the more people we spoke with, Michael, the more we heard their stories, similar stories, people aren't comfortable sharing their story. And if people have nothing coming out of this conversation other than maybe it's time to share our story and understand what isn't working so we can develop things that do work That's going to be a win from this discussion today because we have to start talking about this.
2: Final question, and thank you for being so gracious with your time. The important question, who pays? So if Comp360 gets to market or competitor products get to market, how do we know the insurance companies will pay for it?
3: It's really interesting. So we hired somebody to be our chief commercial officer years before a typical company at our stage would do that. Why? Because we're having discussions with health systems insurers, this has to be accessible. Having an expensive thing that isn't reimbursed does no one any good because these folks typically are really suffering and they don't have access to, to, you know, the kind of cash that you would see um, that people would charge for this. So we need it to be reimbursed. We're working. Last week, we just announced a, a memorandum of understanding with the UK Health Service, where we're really looking at how do we develop research so it is accessible in the state system, where over here, Health is a right, and there you get fully insured just as by virtue of being a citizen. Quite a different model than you have in the U.S. So we're very focused on access.
2: George, that was really illuminating. Thank you so much for the piece that you wrote, and more importantly, for all the information that you just shared. I wish you good things.
3: Hey, Michael, thanks so much. And uh, really, we need to start talking about this more.
2: I agree. I agree with that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, George Goldsmith is the CEO and the co-founder of Compass Pathways. And I thought that was a great conversation. Hear more of Michael Smirkanish on SiriusXM's POTUS, Channel 124.
1: Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirkanish for Independent Minds.
0: A new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley. With premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more. All built to last.